boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient unto parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, irreconcilable, meaning always in conflict, betrayers, rash, proud, insolent, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and having the external form of Christian life with no inner power. This prophecy describes progressive Christianity that imitates the culture of our days. In many churches, as you know, they fly the LGBTQ flag, denying the divinely inspired authoritative truth of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul also wrote in another epistle that the day would come when they would exchange the truth of God for a lie. That day has come. Social and racial justice is their mantra, which the Bible also addresses, but they willfully ignore the authority of the Scriptures and the justice of God. On July 9, 1961, Billy Graham preached a message on the Our Decision entitled, Prepare for the Storm. He said, we live at a time when man is deified and God denied. What would he say today? What would he say today if you're still alive? Whether we realize it or not, although there will always be a remnant that holds to the infallible inert word of God, the Holy Scripture, this culture is having an adverse effect upon some in the area of spiritual contentment. The world with its fashions and dainties and moral standards aimed at the desires of the flesh is taking its toll upon the lives of many believers in the Lord Jesus. For when the desires of the flesh is promoted, unless one is spiritually disciplined, spiritual contentment can easily be dimmed. Look at the Old Testament church. <clears throat> what did they do? They went a whoring after other gods and the standards of the nations. And that they, why? Because they be, were not content in Jehovah, their covenant keeping God. They wanted something more to excite the carnal nature and their religious nature. And as just shared, the world with all its attractive and seductive snares have ensnared many. They'll have gone after the fleshly appeal of progressive Christianity. But it can have an adverse effect upon believers who have not fallen into this seductive snare by diminishing the joy and contentment found in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel and its wonderful message becomes truth that lodges in the mind but not in the heart. In our series of messages from the book of Philippians, if you remember, we began with Christ, our life. Then followed that with Christ, our example. And last week, Christ, our goal. And it's only fitting it's only fitting that we should wind up this series of messages 
Christ our contentment. Before we get into the text, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, let me ask you this question. In Numbers 12, 3, the Holy Spirit has described Moses as the meekest of all men. What character trait did he have that warranted such a commendation? You know something about Moses' background? He was Jochebed's child. Uh, She and her husband were from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. It was a time that Pharaoh had given an edict that all male children should be killed. But we know that Jochebed, his mother, hid him for three months. But then the time came when she could hide him no longer. And she made a little ark and left him drift down the side of the river Nile with the daughter of Miriam to follow to see what would happen. And sure enough, it came before the Pharaoh royalty and the daughter of Pharaoh sent a maid out to get this ark. And when she saw that little baby, she thought, I don't have any children. I'm going to make him for my own. Well, Miriam, the sister, said, can I get somebody to nurse for her? <laughs> and she got her mother. Got his mother. And for three months she had him. But from then on, from then on, he was in the royalty of Pharaoh's Egypt. And he was being trained in the, all the learning of the Egyptians. So much so that when Stephen, who later became a martyr, he addressed that in Acts chapter 7, and I believe it was in uh, verse 22 or along there. Yes, Acts 7, 22, that he was learned in all the uh, deeds and all the... Um, He was trained in all the mighty deeds and words of the Egyptians, and he was looked upon as a royal prince, and people looked up to him. They revered him. But then when he became 40 years old, something happened. Evidently, he was in line for the throne, and so when he realized that he was in line for the throne because he was Pharaoh's daughter, uh, because, yes, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, it came to him, I'm not Pharaoh's daughter, And so what did he do when he was 40 years old? He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God and turn away from the pleasures of sin for a season that he might suffer the affliction with the people of God, as I said, but he considered the reproach of Jesus Christ of greater value, of greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt. Just think of that. And what did he do? He fled down to Midian And in Midian, he came across the prince of Midian, Reuel, and he was a sheep man. And so I want you to listen to these words from verse 21 of Exodus 2. And Moses was content to dwell with the man who shepherded his sheep for 40 years. Now he's being a nobody. He was a somebody for 40 years, and now for 40 years he's going to be a nobody, and we can understand why that description in Numbers 12, 3, he was the meekest of all men, because no man could go from being a somebody to a nobody for 40 years and not be a meek man. What a powerful example of contentment. 
as somebody said, those 40 years and 40 years and 40 years is like he was a, a somebody for 40 years. He was a nobody for 40 years. And then God used him to be help everybody for 40 years. I like that. I really do. Because there is value of learning something about contentment and meekness. Now we come to our text. Philippians chapter 4, 1 to 13. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoice, this is our text now, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. And everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Praise his wonderful name. Almighty, eternal God, speak to us through thy word this morning for Jesus' sake and for our good in his precious holy name. Amen. The first question I would like to ask, what is contentment? What is contentment? Well, the Wycliffe Bible Dictionary puts it this way. It's the acceptance of things as they are, as the wise and loving providence of God, who knows what is good for us, who so loves us as always to seek our good. And the International Standard Encyclopedia, it says contentment is to be free from care, 
because a satisfaction with what is already one's own. What does that mean? Already one's own. It means we have Christ. That's what it means. And why should we not be content? Therefore, contentment is to be free of the effect of external circumstances because of the all-sufficiency of our Lord always being dependent upon him. Although in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom manifesto, the word contentment is not used, but it was very much on the mind of our Lord because from Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 32, it's all about contentment, why we should be content. And then he gives a recipe for contentment in chapter, in chapter 6, 33, when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things you worry about shall be yours. Contentment, then, is the state of the heart, and not in what one possesses, which only can come about by the new birth, John 3, 35, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about life of Christ, new life. And it took me 37 years before the Lord born me again. And then I knew what it was like to be loved and to have life from above. And that hasn't changed. It's only grown in intensity ever since. A person can be rich just like John Rockefeller and not be content. And I can prove that because on one occasion he was asked, how much money does it take to make a person happy, content? And notice his answer. Some of you have heard this already. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Can you imagine how a rich man like that wanted a little bit more? And it's just like that rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And uh, uh, in that passage, when he came running up to Jesus and said, Master, what, does it, I, what do I have to do to get eternal life? The Lord knew inside him. He knew what was in his heart. He said, well, what does the word say? What does the commandment say? Well, he began to quote five, but he missed the tenth one. Then the Lord says, well, you're missing one thing, one thing you like. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And that was too much for him. The riches of possession was so great that he valued it more than eternal life in Jesus Christ. How sad. How sad when you want something that you can see it's passing away more valuable than the eternal life we can have in Jesus Christ. No wonder in Luke 12, 15, the Lord says, Take heed, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things he possesseth, content, but contentment cannot depend upon the things one possesses and neither can it depend upon having a nice home having a nice home what did our blessed lord say they came once uh, uh, this would-be disciple came running up to him and said lord i want to follow you 
And the Lord said, you really want to follow me? Well, foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests. But the son of man no, have nowhere to lay his head. You, you mean you really want to follow me? I know of a man that lived five years in a church. I had a room next to the uh, boiler. And for five years, he had friends, mice. It didn't bother him because he was content in the ministry. Once, there was a poor man. I mean, there was a poor rich man. He was really rich. And he hired a ditch digger. Evidently, in his property, he had a, some of his land was, uh, had poor drainage. And so he thought, well, after he had hired him for a while, he thought, I have to go out and see what he's doing. So he went out and he, uh, to check on this servant he'd hired. And lo and behold, the servant was singing, I'm a child of the king. And this rich man says, what do you mean you're a child of the king? You're just a ditch digger. That's nonsense. And what does this ditch digger say? He gave the sweetest testimony of how the Lord Jesus had changed his life. And he has the joy of the Lord. He has the peace of the Lord. He has a purpose for living. He had happiness in the Lord. He was grateful for all the Lord had given to him and all that the Lord was to him. He said, why should I not sing for joy? Then this poor rich man unburdened his heart to this ditch digger. He's pointing in the direction to where he lived, a mansion on top of the hill. He said, the people up there don't love me. They're just waiting for me to die. John, I wish what you have. And dear ones, all who give their lives complete to the Lord Jesus can have that same peace and contentment. But you have to surrender your heart to him. That's repentance. And you have to trust in his atoning, sacrificial death upon the cross. Oh, dear ones, if you're here and you don't have contentment, I beg of you that there's sweet peace, there's sweet joy, there's sweet delight in the Lord who created us and in the Lord who went to the cross to redeem us and the Lord who reigns on high to live for us and keep us. There's great joy in him. Secondly, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at the last, your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you also were careful, but you lacked opportunity. And I've called this contentment in the Lord to his people. See, the apostle was in his first environment in Rome. He, I'm sorry, not a pot, No, he was in prison in Rome. And in those days, the only way a prisoner could get fed, and I checked with Pastor Bob on this because he's an historian, the only way a prisoner could get uh, sustenance is if his friends and neighbors or those who had cared for him would bring it to him, not only food, but other needs that he had. And these two words where it says uh, the word flourish, it has the idea of the church being revived, careful, carries a thought that Paul would, was, was not forgotten in the minds of the people there, the believers there, uh, uh, Philippi, 
He was very much in our thoughts and prayers uh, of these believers, but they had lacked either opportunity. What does that mean? It could mean that they had no one that they could send to Rome with the gift, or it could mean that the Lord had not prospered and they had no money to give. But then, when they got that money, when they did get money, right away they sent it through Epaphroditus, and that was verse 10 about. But if that were so, we don't know whether it was so or no, whether it was because he couldn't get someone to take the gift there or because they didn't have the money until the Lord prospered them. Listen to this illustration. Theophilus Gale, a theologian of yesteryear, when he would receive a gift, he thankfully received it as a token of God's love to him. Think of that. When you receive a gift, do like he did. Receive it as a token of God's love to you. And what did he do? He contentedly took that gift to show his love to God. He gave it to someone else. I want you to think about something. As I was preparing for this message, I was thinking of this missionaries that are on foreign fields like Caleb and uh, what's that place? Yeah, Papua New Guinea. Can you imagine the joy that he must find if he got an unexpected gift when he was in great need? And there are many, many like that in the mission field today that don't have all that they need. And then when they get the gift, can you imagine how greatly they rejoice in the Lord? Uh, there was a, a time in my life, 1998, there was a, a man from Haiti, um, that was a member of uh, North Shore Baptist Church. And we became friends, and we'd meet once a week just for, just for fellowship in the Bible. Well, then he began a radio program uh, called uh, La Voix de Verita. It's French Creole for the voice of truth. And so we were with him in that. Then he went onto television. And so we were with that. And one time he said, Paul, he said, preach a couple of messages on uh, English. And I did. And then in May, he said, Paul, he said, I want you to take over my program. I said, no, I don't want to do that. So uh, the elders got in touch with me. He said, yes, take it over. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, we changed from La Voix de Verita to The Voice of Truth. Why do I mention that? Down through the years, although we never sought any help, it was amazing absolutely amazing how money came in to support that ministry because we not only give out gospel literature, and you know I do that, uh, when uh, see, uh, we get hundreds and hundreds of calls from the boroughs of uh, a city, uh, and so uh, we get gifts to help sustain, to help send out the gifts. And then we had those four years I spent in the Philippines, uh, 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 I got to know the pastors, they could speak English, and they would send orders for Bibles, uh, concordances, commentaries, and so we were able to help them out. And what a joy it was to get gifts to help us. Uh, uh, and this past year, this past year, would you believe, I got a call from Suffolk County, and the voice said, are you that guy on the program of voice? I said, yes. He said, can I come out? I said, yeah, you can come out. So he came out, and uh, we had good fellowship together. And what do you think he did? He gave me a big gift. I said, what do you want to do that for? Because he said, the Lord wants me to give it to you. And then a month later, he'd done the same thing again. 
I'm sharing this with you because it's content in the Lord's people. And when the Lord's people give you something, take it as from the Lord and rejoice in it that the Lord loves you so much that you want his own to help support you. That's living. Because it's the kingdom of God. Then, thirdly, contentment has, learned, has to be learned. Look at this in uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You see, this verse makes clear that the apostle Paul had to learn what it meant to be content. And by the way, this is the only time this Greek word content is used in the whole New Testament. It means to have enough. It means to be sufficient for one's need. The apostle and his grace and love for the church did not reprove them for not responding to his need sooner. He wanted the believers in Philippi to know that the Lord was providing grace has always been sufficient for him. He wanted them to know. He didn't want them to go on a guilt trip. He said, They've always, I have enough. And before the apostle conversion, he had no lack for anything. His, look, his father was a rich, his father was a Roman. You can imagine he was rich enough to send his son there to sit on the feet of Gamaliel. And then he became part of the Sanhedrin. As part of the Sanhedrin, you can imagine he had plenty to take care of himself from day to day. But when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he went into the ministry of the Lord, everything was cut off. And this is true of many pastors today, what generally called the third world countries. Uh, they don't have sustaining grace, but they're still happy in it. I, I'm so thankful for the literature I get that shows our brethren, the pastors, that are, they're so, they don't care about that they ha don't have enough of this or that. They're just thankful that they can share the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, who has the only one who can give eternal life to those who never heard. Can you imagine people in those uh, uh, countries walking miles to hear the gospel? And by the way, since I've come to New York, I've met people from all over the world. And this morning, uh, this past week, I went to the post office, and there uh, I took notice of this uh, uh, lady behind the window. Uh, she looked different. I said, ma'am, I said, uh, where are you from? She's in Bangladesh. And by the way, I had met people from Bangladesh before, and she had such a beautiful countenance. And we talked a bit, and with that same beautiful countenance, she received the gospel tract. I was, so, I was just so blessed. Poverty and persecution does not damp their enthusiasm for the gospel. And when it doesn't matter your physical, it doesn't matter your economic condition. If you know the Lord, if you know the joy of the Lord, you are content. Praise His wonderful name. The Apostle Paul went through in Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven: weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness. No doubt he had those experiences in mind when in First Corinthians nine twenty seven: but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means I should be a castaway. The Apostle Paul would certainly have known of the Lord's command in Matthew eleven twenty eight: learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He certainly would have known that because to the church at Corinth he said these words, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. 
And so in 1 Timothy, Paul writing to the apostle in his first letter said these words in 1 Timothy 6, 68. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out of this world. So having food and raiment, let us therefore be content. And thirdly, Contentment in the Lord through life's experiences. Listen to this verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In verse 11, he bears testimony that he had to learn contentment. But here in verse 12, he bears testimony that he was instructed by life's experiences that the Lord by divine providence had him experience. As we've looked at verse 11 and now verse 12, I'm reminded what the Lord said to Ananias when he gave to Ananias an assignment to restore the site of Saul of Tarsus and request to be filled and his, and his request to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But notice what he said to Ananias. He said, Saul of Tarsus is going to suffer many things for my sake and the gospel. And so verse 12 is speaking about that. He has learned in whatsoever state he is in, because he's instructed when, he's, when he goes through suffering, he's instructed when he has plenty, he's instructed when he has little, to be content. In, in chapter, in 1 Corinthians 4, 11, even at this hour we hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. He knew John 16, 33, when the Lord told his disciples when he was at the upper room before he went to the cross, he said, in this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Dear ones, I'm glad I'm old. I have never been as content in my life as I am now. It took me so many years to learn the joy of contentment and peace in our blessed Lord. And if there's one thing I could communicate to you this, this morning is that con there's nothing like being content in the Lord. But it took me too many years to surrender completely to the Lord. Just surrender completely to him and you'll know the joy and the peace and the love that only God can give. The apostle, in all his epistles, never made light of the Sabbathship, but rather emphasized the cost, just as the Lord made it so clear. To abound has the idea to exceed and to excel. To abound in what? Well, we get the picture in 1 Timothy 6.18. Not to abound in things pleasant to the flesh, but as this verse makes so clear, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, and to give the gospel, and to give alms to the poor and needy. When the Lord Jesus called to would-be Christians these day, he did not say, accept me, but follow me. Follow me in my way of life. 
All that we just shared should be reflected in smaller or greater degree in the lives that we reflect to honor the Lord or dishonor Him. But the life should give evidence of contentment through whatever experience we go through. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Lord is faithful not to allow you to be tested above that which you're able, but will with that test provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Look what Paul said in, first, uh, in uh, first te- uh, 2 Timothy uh, 1.12. I am not ashamed of the things that I suffered because I know in whom I have believed and I know that he is faithful to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, the day of judgment. I want to give you an illustration. I want you to listen very carefully to this. A well-known minister from England was here in the States, and he was asked to preach at a church where Dr. Philip Brooks was the pastor in Boston. After the service, he started to walk in the direction of the hotel, but he was not sure the uh, direction because he was a stranger to that area. So he noticed the man was following him. And he turned around and said to the man, he said, could you show me the way to this hotel where I have lodging? And the man explained, I just heard your voice. I know who you are. He said, yes, I'll be glad to show you the way. But he said, I'm blind. Now, he could not read, but obviously he could have a little a glimpse. He had a little a, a glimpse of daylight. And the, uh, the minister said, oh, I don't want to burn you with that. He said, no. He said, give me a chance to do something good. He said, very seldom do I have a chance to help people. And then, arm in arm, they walked to the hotel. And I want you to hear what this blind man said. He said, I live alone. He said, I can get around the streets without a guide. But he said, I'm thankful for my blindness because I have all that time for meditation upon the Lord who saved me. And he says, when I get to heaven, I'll be able to see everything. What a wonderful testimony of contentment and blindness. He knew that one day his faith, his, uh, he would be able to see, but he was content to just meditate upon the Lord who had saved him while he was blind. Only the Lord can give that kind of contentment. And regardless of what your situation might be in life's experiences, the Lord will be your contentment if you desire him above all else. Let me repeat that. He will be your contentment if you desire him above all else. Amen, amen, amen. Just as he did for that blind man, which was true of Job. Just think of Job. He lost 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. He lost 7,000 sheep. He lost 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and 3,000 camels all in one day. And what does he do? He falls flat on his face and said, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you imagine 
A man of God saying that. That's there for a purpose. It means that regardless of what kind of a loss, we can still be content. And then five, contentment through life, Christ all sufficiency, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Of all the men and women recorded in the Holy Scriptures, none exemplified this truth more than the Apostle Paul. And when I when you consider all the experiences recorded of him, his sufferings, which are alluded to, the enabling grace of the Lord to plant so many churches, the care of all the churches, listen to his testimony in 2 Corinthians 12.10. Listen. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And note what he said qualifies for this power for Christ's sake. Not for his own sake, but for Christ's sake he suffered all this. Then there is contempt that the Apostle Paul never... I'm sorry. Just think of what the Apostle Paul, how he persecuted the church. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, 11. He said, I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And why he was so content in Jesus Christ. Oh, brother, how wonderful it is to have peace, contentment. Oh, I can't, I can't wish that enough on each one of you. That's the joy of the Lord. Uh, you know why I think people don't enjoy the ministry? Because they're not content in Jesus Christ. They're not content in the gospel, just like the Old Testament church. They weren't content. No, they wanted to get those things that were pleasing to the flesh, and there's so much in the world today that's pleasing to the flesh, and it's sidetracking men who claim to know the Lord. I want, you, I want to talk about three voices. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want you to think of three voices. The first voice is the voice of love. Look what he says in Galatians 2.20. It's his personal testimony. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Individual love. He does not see us a mass of people, of believers. He sees us individually. And the Apostle Paul knew that. He says he loved me and gave himself for me. Not only is the voice of the Lord in love, but the voice of the Lord in wisdom to do all things. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a, ministry, in a mystery which God ordained before the foundation of the world. 2 Corinthians 2, 7. In other words, he spoke with the wisdom of God and that's why his messages were so powerful. It was in the wisdom of God. It was in the power of God. And it was in the love of God. And that's what made his messages so powerful. And then thirdly, and I just use the word power. But I'd give you 
I have the time. I'll give you a personal testimony about the wisdom of God. Now, some of you heard this before, but it's so precious to me because it happened. It was on one of my trips to the Far East, uh, to the Mindanao, and I had a busy day all day, and it was 5 o'clock. I was thinking I was going to speak that evening. I thought, oh, now I'm going to have a break. But the director said to me, I want you to speak to my teachers. And I was totally unprepared, totally unprepared, and I knew I had to speak to them for about an hour. Praise God. What do you think the Lord did for me? He gave me a verse that I could speak on for an hour. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Uh, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy, uh, thy name. That's so precious to me because the Lord undertook from me with his wisdom to give me that wisdom to know what to speak. And as I said, his is the voice of power. Listen to these words from Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of your power to us who believe? According to the working of your mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all power, might, and dominion, and above every nameless name, not only in this world, but in the world to come, and that put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of the church to fill all in all. Look at Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I would illustrate what I just said, and I just shared with you about a saint during the time of the Reformation as he was waiting execution. I don't know his name. I don't know what period of church history it was from. But it's true because it was credible from where I got this illustration. This man, a believer in the Lord Jesus, was going to be executed. And what did they do? They put him in an iron cage. Now, just think, in an iron cage, uh, uh, it depends if someone gets the food, but no way to relieve himself, anything like that. He was put out in public display before he was executed. And people would go by and they gawk at him and say, hold him in derision. But one guy, one man, did more than just glance at him. He went to see, why did this man have a cheerful disposition? And so he went up to the man in the cage and says, why are you so cheerful? And the man says, all you can see are these iron bars but you cannot see the music of God in my heart. Think of that. He was able to rejoice in the Lord just like the Apostle Paul in suffering. Just like Peter and John, they, they rejoiced the Lord because they were called worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Parents are exceedingly blessed when their children do not always have to be entertained by their video or their TV programs or, uh, or one of these modern crazed uh, things that they have for children in the world today. 
But it's a special blessing when children are content just to be with their parents, just to be with them who loves them. I know this is seldom seen in our day, but it's used to illustrate that when the Lord's people are happy and content in the Lord who loves them, this is pleasing in the sight. I want you to turn to verse 18 of chapter 4. Chapter 18, I mean verse 18. Listen to these words. But I have all and abound, and I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, notice, well-pleasing to God. They're imitating the Lord Jesus as he was the son of man. In John 8, 29, he said, all I do is to please the Father. And when children uh, please their earthly parents, then their earthly parents should be motivated to please their heavenly Father. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a little late, but I, a little over time, but I'm going to finish. Can I? Norman Hall said in his booklet, uh, um, It is I, referring to the passage in John 6, 16 to 21. When after the Lord fed the 5,000, the Lord, knowing the people wanted to make him king, dismissed the multitude, he sent his disciples on an errand to go across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and he went up the mountain to pray. The disciples rode about three miles, and then the contrary winds, they couldn't go, no, they just couldn't move, regardless how hard they rode. Uh, we know that they just could not make any headway. The winds were that bad. And then we see our precious Lord coming down, making the, uh, the, the sea a pavement for his feet, and he uh, gets into the, uh, the boat, and soon they're at the shore. Now, why, why did I say that? For this reason. I want you to listen to Hall's comment on that recorded event. He said, trials unite us more closely to Christ. Now, these next words. The closer we are to Christ, the more contented we will be. The more we are drawn, the closer we are to Christ, the more contented we be. A person who is content in the Lord does not have to try and impress people with their Bible knowledge. They don't have to try and draw people to themselves. They're content to draw people to Jesus Christ and not to themselves. And then I, I have a verse here I want you to memorize. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your manner of life be as... And here I tell you to memorize it, and I still haven't memorized it but I'll have it memorized. Let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm going to close with this uh, illustration. There was a bishop in the early church who was a, a, a memorable example of the virtue of contentment. One day he was asked to share the secret of what made him so content. The venerable old man replied with these words of wisdom. He said, it consists nothing more 
than the right use of one's eyes. He said, I remember, first of all, to look up to heaven. Look up to heaven and remember that my principal business down here is to get up there. Then I look upon the earth and call to my mind how small a place I will occupy when they bury me. And then I, I, I turn and look around the world and see multitudes, multitudes unhappy. And then he says, I think about my Lord, of whom is my all in all. And he says, why should I complain? I have Jesus. Do you have Jesus this morning? I mean, do you really have him? Is he your Lord first and then your Savior? Are you content in him? Or do you just have a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge? He calls upon you. He loves you. But he wants you to surrender your life to him. Because he cannot bless you until you, he cannot save you until you surrender your life to him. Because that's repentance. And then trust in his atoning work upon the cross of Calvary. And he will deliver you just like he delivered me, an old sinner saved by grace. And I leave you with this. Is Christ your life? That was the first message. Second, is Christ your example? Thirdly, is Christ your goal that we talked about last week? And fourthly, is Christ your contentment? Oh, dear ones, I don't just spin out words to hear myself talk. I know in whom I have believed, and I love him. And I want you to have that contentment that all, uh, all get when they give their lives completely to Jesus Christ. Praise his wonderful, wonderful holy name. Praise him. Praise him. Oh, it's so wonderful to have a Savior like the Lord Jesus. Almighty, eternal God. May the words that were thee not return void, but was not of thee just cast away. Oh, may we learn to be content in the Lord. For when we're content in the Lord, we know the joy of the Lord. We know the peace of the Lord. And we have a purpose to glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Oh, work in each one of our hearts. Work, let us to be real about our salvation in the Lord Jesus. Let us take it seriously. Let us be content in our blessed Lord. And let us not be ashamed of him. And let us be ready to share the glad tidings of those who never heard. To God be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.